It was an event that almost single-handedly started a war, and not just any war, but one of the bloodiest and most fearsome struggles for independence the world has ever seen. Dubbed nearly a century after the shot heard round the world, after a poem on the subject by the famed American writer Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the skirmish pegged British troops against the colonists in the towns of Lexington and Concord, just outside of Boston, and was the opening of what would become the American Revolutionary War. Let's pay these places a visit and see exactly what happened on that fateful day, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. By the 1770s, the British had had a presence in North America for about 150 years. In that time, relations between the colonists and the mother country had proven to be fairly uneventful. But with other European powers vying for land and resources in the so-named New World, conflicts often broke out between them and the other colonial possessions that surrounded them. In the North, and what's now Canada, was the classic enemy of the British, the French, who, much like the two countries had for centuries in Europe, would often squabble with one another with threats of conflict and territorial expansion. These reached a crescendo in 1756 with the outbreak of the French and Indian War, known abroad as the Seven Years' War, which saw the French encroach into British territory in the Ohio River Valley in what's now Ohio. Britain naturally responded with a declaration of war, and, seven years later, emerged victorious. While the British had gained several new territories as a result of the fighting, the conflict had proven to be quite costly, so much so that the government began taxing the colonists heavily. First came the Stamp Act in 1765, which imposed a tax on all paper documents throughout the colonies. This was followed by the Townsend Act two years later. Named after the British Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, Charles Townsend, it was a series of measures passed by Parliament to tax goods being imported to America. It was the passing of the Second Act, however, that began raising eyebrows amongst the colonists, who were beginning to see these measures as nothing more than the government's abuse of power. But when they tried to resist these new laws, troops were dispatched to silence any opposition. You see, the colonists weren't entitled to the same rights in Parliament as other British subjects, and therefore had no voice to speak on their behalf. But tensions between the colonies and the mother country reached a fever pitch in 1770, when an act of resistance on behalf of the colonists broke out in Boston. When British soldiers retaliated by opening fire into the mob, five men were killed. The tragedy came to be known as the Boston Massacre, and fueled further distrust and dissatisfaction with the government. As you might imagine, the tyranny didn't stop there. Three years later, in 1773, Parliament passed the Tea Act. Meant to bail out the faltering East India Company, a British economic powerhouse in Asia, the colonies were once again heavily taxed, this time on tea. Fed up with these political maneuvers, a group of Bostonians disguised themselves in December that year and boarded British supply ships, tossing crates of tea into the harbor. This event famously came to be known as the Boston Tea Party, and perhaps explains America's obsession with coffee. While they didn't demand independence from Britain right away, a group of colonial delegates met in Philadelphia in September the following year to express their concerns over the Crown's seemingly endless parade of unlawful taxation. Dubbed the First Continental Congress, it was comprised of such legendary founding fathers as Patrick Henry, John Jay, Samuel Adams, and a veteran of the French and Indian War from Virginia named George Washington. It was here that the first iteration of what would eventually become the United States Constitution was drafted. Drawing upon several previous documents, including the English Bill of Rights, the Magna Carta, and even Hammurabi's Code of Ethics from ancient Assyria, it proved the rights of all citizens of the colonies, including freedom of assembly, trial by jury, and above all, life, liberty, and property. With the First Continental Congress adjourned, the delegates agreed to reconvene eight months later in May of 1775. But by that time, things would escalate considerably, ultimately leading to revolution.
By April of 1775, tensions between the colonists and British authority were at an all-time high. Sensing that trouble was brewing, General Thomas Gage of the British Army dispatched even more troops to the colonies in an attempt at silencing any and all opposition. In all, a force 800 strong was deployed to Boston. Having received word of a storehouse full of arms and gunpowder in the nearby town of Concord, some 20 miles, 32 kilometers west of the city, they departed late in the evening of April 17th, a Monday, with the intent of arriving early the following morning to seize the weapons and capture those responsible for stowing them away. It was quite late, yet no one in Boston could sleep. The sound of marching feet made sure of that. Those who stood by their windows peeked through the drawn curtains, where they beheld the intimidating, yet impressive sight, of some 800 British troops, adorned in their trademark red coats, just about to disembark on foot for Concord. Under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, they'd marched through another small town, Lexington, 21 miles, or 34 kilometers, to the northwest of Boston, along the way. Unbeknownst to them, however, colonist spies had intercepted the plan, sending a number of patriot horsemen, including a 40-year-old blacksmith and native Bostonian named Paul Revere, to warn the citizens of both towns of the impending British advance. Upon receiving word of this news, Captain John Parker of Lexington hastily assembled a militia of anywhere between 70 and 100 men, armed with muskets and pitchforks, to meet the redcoats in the green in the center of the town. It was still dark by the time they were ready. But the wait wouldn't be long. At around 5 a.m. on the morning of April 18, 1775, the British arrived at Lexington. What they saw surprised them, to say the least. There, waiting for them, was a colonist militia armed and seemingly ready for a fight. But when Captain Parker saw that his men were severely outnumbered, he called for them to retreat. In the confusion, a single shot was fired, and to this day, no one knows exactly who, or for that matter, which side, had shot first. Regardless, the singular event would prove to be the catalyst that would unleash complete and total mayhem just seconds later. On edge as they already were, the Redcoats fired a volley into the retreating Patriots, killing eight men in all and injuring several others. No sooner had they done this did they proceed towards Concord. Furious, Captain Parker and the survivors swore revenge. About three hours later, just before 8 a.m., the British arrived at Concord. Lieutenant Colonel Smith, along with Major John Pitcairn, first ordered a number of their companies, consisting of some 220 troops, to secure the bridge in the north of the town, and then proceed on to a farm belonging to Colonel James Barrett, the supposed stash house where the stockpile of weapons was being kept, and secure it. Upon arriving at the bridge, however, the companies were startled to find a patriot militia of close to 400 men observing them from the high ground that surrounded them. This militia consisted of residents not just from Concord, but other nearby towns, and even some from Boston. Among these were a significant number of African Americans, both enslaved and freed, who had taken up arms against the oppressive British to fight for the colonist cause. From where they stood, the Patriots could see smoke rising from the town, indicating that the British had captured the arsenal and begun laying siege to the surrounding area. Looking on in horror, Lieutenant Joseph Hosmer, the leader among them, famously shouted, Will you let them burn the town down? The reply, as you can imagine, was an emphatic no. Thus the militia leapt into action. First, they secured the bridge in the northern part of the town. These patriots, led by Colonel Barrett, quickly seized the bridge, but were ordered not to fire upon the redcoats unless they shot first. Meanwhile, back on the high ground, a sizable chunk of the militia was being led by one Captain Isaac Davis and three men from the nearby town of Acton, known to history as the Acton Company, each of whom was renowned throughout the colony for their sharpshooting skills. When asked by Lieutenant Colonel Smith if the Patriots were prepared to fight his British forces, Captain Davis responded with a confident, I haven't a man afraid to go. 
With that, the remaining colonists descended the hill in an orderly fashion. Shocked by their size and formation, the Redcoats retreated and regrouped on the opposite hill with Davis's company in hot pursuit. When the Patriots were within range, the British opened fire, killing the 30-year-old Davis instantly. Seeing what had happened, one among them, a major from Concord, shouted, For God's sake, fire! causing the militia to launch their own volley in retaliation. Three Redcoats were struck and killed, while nine others were injured. It was this volley that, nearly a century later, the famed American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, would famously dub the shot heard round the world. Unbeknownst to anyone who was present that day on the makeshift battlefield, it was the start of what would eventually come to be known as the American Revolution. Fearing for their safety, Smith and Pitcairn ordered the British to retreat and make the return trip to Boston. This, however, would prove to be little better as untold thousands of patriots descended upon the city, attacking the Redcoats on all sides. From there, the enemy retreated to Lexington, where Captain Parker and his men were finally able to carry out their revenge. Taking cover behind trees, rocks, walls, any concealment they could find, they fired upon the unsuspecting retreating British, picking them off one by one. Other colonists soon followed suit, and for the next 12 miles, 19 kilometers, along a stretch of road that has since been renamed the Battle Road, the enemy were continually ambushed by the Patriots. The following day, April 19th, the colonists emerged victorious, and, though greatly outnumbered by the British, were encouraged to, quote, rise up and fight again, unquote, which they would, ultimately leading to American independence eight years later in 1783. In light of this debacle, from the British perspective, General Gage dispatched reinforcements to relieve the initial battle-weary troops. This, too, proved in vain, for by now, word had spread throughout Massachusetts' colony of the Patriots' success against the enemy. No sooner were these new Redcoat companies dispatched were they met with violent resistance. Though they did as best they could to fight back, they, too, had to ultimately retreat to the safety of British ships stationed in Boston Harbor. In all, 73 of their number had been killed, with countless others wounded, a staggering statistic given that the Patriot cause had only suffered 49 deaths and far fewer injured. The colonists had won the day. The story of the shot heard round the world is a prime example of what happens when good, honest, hard-working people are pushed too far. As Henry David Thoreau famously put it in his essay, Civil Disobedience, quote, that government is best which governs least, unquote. In short, the government, any government, should serve to perform the most basic functions of leadership over a nation or group of people. To impose or enact anything further would be nothing short of tyranny, as exemplified by the number of outrageous acts that Parliament imposed upon the colonists in America. Today, the brave men and women who resisted such acts are heroes not just in American history, but world history, and proof positive that change for the better can come if only we rise up to claim it. Thanks for listening. I apologize for the break last week, but there's always so much going on this time of year. I'm glad to be back, however, with some exciting topics. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it to ensure continued content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing also help in big ways, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Be sure to tune in next week for an intriguing episode about the mysterious Nazca lines of Peru, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.